Hello, Urgent Matters. This is Andrew Meltzer. Today, we will be doing a Urgent Matters policy update with policy and advocacy experts, Drs. Marisa Dowling and Dr. Aisha Terry. Um, both are policy and advocacy experts and emergency medicine doctors. Uh, both are very familiar with the interworkings of federal law and uh, have worked on the Hill. So I'm excited to have them. Our topics today will be the federal laws that have been passed so far, how it affects our patients, how it supports our practice, and what still needs to be done. What are the gaps and what possible legislation is on the horizon? So then we have Marissa Dowling here, who's our health policy fellow at George Washington University. So thank you, Dr. Dowling, for joining us. Thank you. And of course, Dr. Terry is a uh, return guest, so happy to have you. And uh, thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having me. And I think as we know, as a background, Congress has enacted, I believe it's four separate bills back in March and April and uh, totaling roughly $3 trillion, a little more than that. And uh, let's, before we go into the current problems, let's talk a little bit about what those four bills have done. I know there's the CARES bill, there's, a, there's the three other bills too. And uh, maybe Dr. Dowling, can you summarize a little bit of what's already been accomplished with those four bills back in the spring? Yeah, definitely. The first bill actually happened in March 6th, and that was the Coronavirus Preparedness and Response Supplemental Appropriations Act. And this was sort of the Congress's first, you know, salvo into trying to address the pandemic. Um, and so it's relatively small compared to the bills I'll talk about later. This is only $8.3 billion. This was really just trying to get some more test kits out there, start working on vaccine and drug development, some aid to local health departments. There was also a small amount of small business loans, 20 million. And then there was actually some international aid. So there was $1.2 billion in international aid. And this is also the law where um, HHS, or sorry, Health and Human Services Secretary, um, was given the authority to loosen some of the telehealth regulations that will basically allow there to be more flexibility in telehealth. Essentially, this happened so fast, there was really no time for politics. And so this was a very bipartisan bill. It passed both chambers very easily. The second bill uh, is the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. And this was really working really fast for Congress. So this is just 12 days later. So on March 18th, they passed this. And the key provisions in terms of healthcare I'd point out for this um, are that it uh, provides for free COVID-19 testing uh, for those with insurance. And I'll say in theory, because I've definitely heard a lot of stories where that's not actually happening in practice. The requirement that all insurers should be covering COVID-19 treatments. Um, they shouldn't be like carving that out in any way. Uh, they also increased uh, the Medicaid um, assistance to states from the federal government, the FMAP, and they increased that by 6.2%. And then most of the bill, though, I would say is focused more on economic relief for Americans. So there's more um, things related to nutrition assistance, unemployment insurance. There's also for uh, emergency paid sick leave. And I will point out that um, frontline providers are excluded from that sick leave, and that was an intentional choice uh, by the bill's authors. Um, they were kind of worried that there would be a shortage of essential healthcare workers if they mandated emergency sick leave for those folks. Um, so that was a exclusion. Just, just to clarify, so you're saying based upon these rules, if you're uninsured, the federal government will pick up your COVID test or should be able to cover this COVID test. Is that what I heard? Uh, if you're insured, your insurer should be paying for it. So there if was you're no insured. They should pay for it without a copay. What about if you're uninsured? There was no provision for that. 
No provision for that. Okay. And then is that if you have symptoms, if you're exposed or regardless, there wasn't any specification on that? Uh, that has definitely been a sticking point and why I think some of the payment issues have emerged is because sometimes it's, you have to be like, as your primary diagnosis be listed as COVID or like suspicion for COVID. Um, and that's definitely, you know, not always the case. Sometimes there's a billing mistake. And I think that's what causes a fair bit of it. Um, but there really hasn't been, at least in the law, there wasn't a clear standard. So it's been more left up to the insurers and to, you know, Medicare and Medicaid to kind of figure this out. Um, it wasn't as prescriptive as we may like it in hindsight to have been. Um, you mentioned the 80, is it the, the paid sick leave, I think it's 80 hours. Is that correct? So that's essentially uh, two allowed, weeks or? Yeah, you're allowed two weeks. Mm -hmm. Two weeks. So, I mean, that gets tricky when you have a person who's required 14 days of quarantine and then it happens again, you know, so you're 14 days is 80 hours right there. So, cause I, I feel like I've had a couple patients who don't want to get tested again because they were under quarantine. They've used up their 80 hours of sick leave. And now if they comes up positive, they're worried they're not going to get any more sick leave. Yeah. Yeah. And then a lot of people are not even eligible for this. It's really like a Goldilocks kind of zone. So like if you're in a small employer or in a very large employer, you don't get covered through this. Um, but overall, you get, um, you get two weeks of fully paid sick leave if you are eligible for this program. And then you get another two weeks, uh, two thirds pay um, through the program. But again, a lot of people are not eligible, including frontline workers. Got you. And is there any provision that says this testing has to be timely too? Or is there no nothing regarding you know, sort of the timeliness of the response? Because is are they getting full reimbursement, these testing companies, regardless of how long it takes for these results to come back? So yeah, Congress did not set like a specific timeline for tests to come back in. Um, usually they're a little more broad. They defer that sort of to the agencies and I guess the administration to kind of set guidelines there. Having a national testing strategy, I think would be great, um, but we don't currently. Yeah, there's just so many um, factors to take into account when it comes to testing in terms of when the results will come back, like, you know, labs and their capacity and transport of, uh, you know, the, the specimen, et cetera. And so that would be really tough to regulate. But generally, you know, insurance companies have, um, if you will, a statute of limitation in terms of time frame by which you can still seek reimbursement and or um, coverage. And so, yeah, I think that it's a pretty lengthy yeah. time. I think frame. for Medicare, you're allowed like a full year to submit. <laughs> so there's no copay to get a test, but let's say your test comes back positive, or let's say you also have pneumonia or sepsis and you need hospitalization. Is there no copay for illnesses related to COVID also? Uh, so there was an effort in the HEROES Act, which uh, we can talk about, but essentially that was a bill passed by House Democrats in mid-May. Um, that would try and kind of uh, allow for uh, treatment of COVID-19 and COVID-19 related illnesses to be covered um, at no cost to Americans. You know, it'd be great if people didn't have fear about getting treatment to, that would lead them to seek care sooner and hopefully have better outcomes um, and, or even feel comfortable, you know, getting a test because they know it'd be covered. But um, we haven't seen that bill pass yet. So right now negotiations remain stalled. Um, as of the last bill that passed was in late April. So with these first four bills, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that most of it went to businesses or individual payouts, but then there was also a fair amount of money, and we're talking hundreds of billions to healthcare and research, and then also to testing. Is that been adequate or not adequate, or is, is this these upcoming bills 
or, or is there more going to healthcare and research and more going to testing? Is that some of the, uh, the I guess, the shortfalls we currently see? Yeah, I definitely think we could be or should be investing um, more in the testing and treatment um, aspect. I know in the HEROES Act, there was $11 billion um, in state and local aid to ramp up testing. Um, I know in HEROES, there was additional funding. And I believe in the last uh, Republican uh, bill that they had been talking about, there was another $75 billion for testing. Um, and then I even know that HHS hasn't actually spent all the money they've been allocated. And so I think there's also been trouble like just actually ramping up these programs and spending the money um, that's been allocated. And so I think there's a lot to improve still in terms of our testing capacity and uh, contact tracing, for example. I would just add to that, you know, I think that the, the first batch of the CARES Act in terms of the Provider Relief Fund um, gave out about $100 billion in aid to healthcare providers, but that included all types of healthcare providers. And so we're talking academic urban hospitals, rural hospitals, small, big community health centers, physician groups, dentists, nursing homes, et cetera. And so once you start to kind of spread the wealth, if you will, amongst so many providers, um, what actually ends up trickling down uh, could be less than what you might uh, anticipate just at surface level. I know the American College of Emergency Physicians has actually asked Congress to designate a specific amount of money just for emergency physicians specifically. And I think that that's how we might get at being able to, in a more tangible way, kind of realize something effective in terms of relief relative to um, financial um, dollars, if you will. People say there's a workforce shortage and, and personally there's not, I don't think a, a shortage of emergency physicians in particular is a distribution issue. And so similarly, you know, with all of these funds um, I think we just have to be really careful to make sure that the distribution of the funds is equitable um, throughout the country and throughout various types of healthcare provider groups. Can you just sort of help me understand sort of the two positions and let's for a moment pretend we don't, we're not all cynical about politics and that both sides are trying to do it, you know, what they think is right for the country. What are the two sort of positions here? Why is one group saying they need essentially tenfold versus the other group. Can you explain that to me or is it really just sort of hard to understand both sides? Uh, yeah, so my understanding is that the main obstacle has been more around like economic assistance. I think the healthcare response, I think, remains more bipartisan, let's say, um, and how much prioritization we want to give, how much additional funding, the need for additional testing, that's not as controversial. Um, mainly it's been about, I think, unemployment assistance and specifically state and local aid. Um, that is the sticking point where um, most of the funding in both bills would go towards. Um, the healthcare response could be improved, um, but has been less controversial. Thank you. And then I've been hearing things like patients or people who don't, can't pay their rent can't get evicted. I mean, obviously that seems like a compassionate thing. What are sort of the problems when that's done without legislation or when that's done as sort of a, an executive order? Um, how does that become more complicated down the road for people? Yeah, I, I, was, I was really interested to see uh, that the CDC issued this um, kind of eviction moratorium, which is, had been something that had been included in legislation earlier, but um, there was never really any rental assistance as part of that program and uh, kind of deferred everything. And then it ex the legislation expired in late July. And then the CDC stepped in and said, we're going to continue this, but we don't really have an enforcement mechanism for it. Um, and similarly, it's not, you know, it's really not clear that it would stand up under any sort of lawsuit. Um, they do technically have the authority to do it under the 
um, public health emergency, but um, I think the main issue is that there's no funding through a, uh, an executive kind of mandate or administration mandate. And so it, it still means that, you know, if and when the moratorium is over, um, families are going to be left with a very large bill to pay. Um, and that could lead to, I think, the crisis that we all are trying to avoid, which is, you know, um, a large increase in, I guess, homelessness and people living in closer quarters, which would not at all help with our pandemic response. I think it's going to really boil down to um, it being incumbent upon city ordinances to then enact local policy, then extend the moratorium and, and, and create kind of local provisions. And I know that there are several cities um, that have already um, lobbied, if you will, their, their local town halls around um, eviction policies in that particular city. So that, that boils down to, in terms of actually having meat and, and having teeth in terms of effectiveness, I think it really is going to be the city and local level to kind of run with what the CDC has now given them permission to do, if you will. So just so I get a better understanding of what my patients are dealing with. So with this prior legislation, a lot of people got a one-time check, depending upon what their income level is. And then some people got supplemental unemployment insurance. Now at this point now, mid-September, have both of those things generally run out from sort of a, I mean, I assume the one-time check you can potentially have saved, but most of it's probably spent if you needed it. Is the supplemental federal unemployment insurance, is that basically run out across the country? Or uh, I'm sure there's some states that still are providing it, but are people still getting some support from the federal government now who have been unemployed? My understanding is that that program expired, um, that would have expired in, I believe the early August. And so that essentially is where the stalemate happened. I think there was some thought that it, that program expiring would lead finally both sides to kind of um, negotiate more you know, fervently to try and get the next deal, but um, that hasn't actually happened. And so um, it's kind of left to state and local governments, I think, to try and fill the gap. And in the meantime, you know, Americans are, are suffering that that money was being used and I think was supporting the economy. Um, and so I, I do worry about that lack of federal support. Now, this summer, all of us have been working in the emergency department. I feel like I've seen a sort of skyrocketing of social problems, and whether it's substance use disorders, problems related to homelessness, interpersonal violence, I think a lot of this is related to the economy. Is there things from the federal level that people are talking about that maybe to address some of these things? I'm assuming you're seeing the same thing. I haven't seen data on this, but this has sort of been the conversation going on. Um, sort of amongst emergency doctors, and I think it's been my own personal experience. I, I know there has been some uh, legislation around trying to increase uh, funding for behavioral health, and speci specifically, uh, there was some loosening around for addiction treatment. There was some loosening of the prescription requirements during the pandemic. Um, we've also seen, I think, more interest in telehealth, and particularly for behavioral health, um, trying to pick up to kind of pick up the uh, excess, I think we're seeing in um, psychiatry and in substance abuse during the pandemic, which are, you know, the diseases of despair, I think, essentially. And so it's not surprising that they've picked up during this economic downturn and time of social isolation for so many. Uh, I wouldn't say it's been necessarily a focus, but it's definitely something that um, I think Congress is aware of. And there's been efforts to try and beef up funding for agencies like SAMHSA, which is the main agency that deals with uh, substance abuse in particular. I do feel like uh, there's really an opportunity to kind of use maybe this pandemic a little bit as a silver lining to try and increase uh, funding and increase telehealth access to these critical services. And so I'd be excited if we'd be able to kind of see those go forward. 
Um, but I definitely agree. I've seen those same sort of diseases despair more commonly in the ED in the last couple months. Yeah, I think Dr. Dowling hit it on the head. In terms of specific federal efforts, I think the focus has been around mental health um, as well as substance abuse. And that's great. You know, that's awesome. We obviously need assistance there and hopefully those provisions will persist even past the pandemic because it was a mess, frankly, before COVID-19. And so certainly now we are seeing far more patients with anxiety and depression and despair, as Dr. Dowling so eloquently said. And, and I think that there's an increasing opportunity just to kind of go back briefly to what we talked about in terms of housing to make that a future focus in terms of social outreach um, relative to how individuals are impacted by the pandemic. And so the hope is that all of this recent talk around the eviction epidemic, really, which is what we're kind of seeing in the country, um, will then lead to broader conversations around housing and resources um, in terms of uh, making sure that people um, have homes. There are some new rules regarding telemedicine, and I believe, now correct me if I'm wrong, this is not legislation, but this is HHS rules. And some of those new rules, to my understanding, and please clarify, are regarding and of where the site requirement can be originated, what types of interfaces that we can now use as doctors to talk to our patients, and what kind of prior relationship you need to have with patients in order to have a telemedicine visit. Has this had a bit of big effect, and is this sort of an accurate description of the new changes? Uh, yeah, I think I think you have the the essence of it there. So yeah, basically you have to be in certain rural areas now. This is specifically for Medicare. I should caveat all this. Uh, HHS says you can be anywhere in the U.S. Um, before you had to be at certain clinics in order to use the technology. Now you can be at home. Um, before you had to use like certain uh, audiovisual technology. Now you can just use the phone call or Zoom. A lot of these unsecured um, applications you can use as well and still be paid. Um, they've also uh, kind of changed like what conditions can be covered. Um, so there's a lot more uh, conditions that are eligible for coverage through telehealth. And then right now um, for Medicare, um, the payments are equal for in-person and telehealth, um, which I think has really uh, spurred a lot of interest and, uh, you know, movement on the industry side to try and see this uh, continue. And I definitely think a lot of patients and providers have also been relatively pleased um, with the expansion. It's really provided a way for us to take care of our patients in a way that we couldn't really before we kind of get to go into their homes and see a little bit more what they're dealing with, um, as well as you know keep them safe during the pandemic by limiting their exposure from uh, going to public areas. So I definitely think that's been a, a positive change and I would be, uh, I think, interested to see how it goes forward. There's still obviously some obstacles. Um, the main one that you highlighted is that um, in order for this to continue, Congress would need to act. Right now, all those, all these rule changes are through um, just HHS agency uh, rules. But if we wanted to continue things, especially for like the payments, for example, um, we would need Congress to act on that. I will say there is a lot of interest on the Hill for this. So there's a lot of bipartisan legislation trying to do this. There's probably a half dozen bills back and forth between the chambers interested in this. I think there is good political will to try and see something happen. But the, you know, I think the sticky question will be around reimbursement, you know, coverage, um, the security and uh, privacy aspects, as well as fraud. There's also some questions about interstate medical licensure in particular and how um, to deal with that. A lot of states have waived their licensure requirements during the public health emergency. It's not necessarily clear that all states will continue that afterwards. Um, and the federal government doesn't really have a role in direct medical licensing. So that will be another, um, I think, challenge for the broader expansion of telehealth long term. But I definitely think uh, 
telehealth expansion has been one of the silver linings of this pandemic. And so I'm hopeful that we can see some lasting changes there. So as we start to wrap up this podcast, thank you so much. This has been incredibly illuminating for me and it's great to have policy and advocacy experts on our podcast channel. I think I'd like to close with both of you trying to tell me maybe one sort of key thing that you think Congress should really prioritize if there was, I know this is such a multifactorial problem, but maybe you could tell me if there was really one dream you had that could get passed. And a lot of times these things are all tied up with multiple things, I understand. But if there was one thing that you thought that we really got to get this done, um, and it can be anything from the post office to, you know, Medicaid support. Um, but if there's one thing you're really hoping to get past this fall, I'm going to say before the election, what is sort of your hope for that, both from, I guess, from ASEP's policy as sort of the lead advocate, Dr. Terry, and then also from your expertise on the Hill and as a policy analyst, uh, Dr. Dowling? So yeah, I think the main thing I, I think that I really struggled with and was, I think, baffling to so many of us was just how poor our data systems were early on in this pandemic. Um, so specifically, you know, around health disparities, we were seeing, you know, kind of trickling in of data from certain county health departments, and we were seeing these horrible disparities, but it took roughly like a month and a half before we actually had any like national data on these disparities and are really were able to track this in any robust way. And, you know, looking into it a little further, it seemed like that kind of reflected the fact that we have a federalist system of government. So we were relying on a lot of state and local governments to collect this data and those um, entities have been kind of chronically underfunded. Um, and so I think long-term, I would like to see us really kind of building up and modernizing that system. A lot of times, you know, these departments are still faxing records and things like that. But for the scope of the challenge that we're dealing with, especially I think with COVID-19, it's clear that we really need to be modernizing and investing in these systems if we wanna help both with this pandemic and I think track some of our more chronic diseases and other infectious diseases long into the future. So. Um, I know some of the, the HEROES Act does include some provisions like that, and I'd be really excited if we could see some of those advance and hopefully in a relatively non-bipartisan way that, you know, we, to do any good policy, you need good data. Excellent points for sure. Just a piggyback on, on Dr. Dowling's point, I'll, I'll add that um, we at ASAP are actually working to, to create really CEDAR 2.0 um, that hopefully can contribute to making a more robust um, set of data um, uh, points that are available in real time, uh, that are accurate, that are reflective of the entire country. CEDAR actually is in every single state in the United States except for two. And so the penetration is, is really robust. And so um, that is a huge piece in terms of really just having um, uh, in real time accurate data that is reflective of the entire country. Even, you know, the CDC's data has some limitations in terms of, for example, how many states are included in their data set. From a methodological standpoint, the, the number of states that are included are supposed to be representative of the whole country, but the reality is that it's only about 10 states or so um, of all of the states in our country that are included in the CDC data um, set related to uh, infectious diseases and the like, and obviously COVID. And so it's a huge point um, that Dr. Dowling makes, and ASAP is hoping to be a part of um, that growth relative to, at the very least, um, really optimizing the use of our registry data. I would also just add that there is an opportunity, given the pandemic, to ride the momentum and take advantage of the opportunity to expand malpractice reform. 
the issue of, of medical liability has historically been extremely partisan and polarized and, and hasn't really gotten a lot of meaningful legislation or regulation passed uh, over the past several years. It's been quite difficult. We still haven't managed to, to get any significant uh, medical liability reform passed. Um, there have been other bigger issues, I think, on the table in the past four years in terms of health policy, such as out-of-network billing. Um, but then there was COVID, right? And so now um, we know that in the, in the face of COVID, medical liability has been discussed uh, in terms of just the extreme circumstances that we as healthcare providers are having to endure in um, managing the pandemic and how that it leaves us extremely vulnerable uh, in terms of, of liability. So while liability reform was actually not included in the HEROES Act, um, many think that liability reform will be central to the next COVID-19 package. Typically, Democrats have historically been opposed to these measures, but um, it's thought that, again, narrow tort protections for medical professionals during the public health emergency may receive bipartisan support this time. Um, so we do know that some states are pushing already for medical liability efforts in the face of COVID. In fact, 16 states have passed some type of COVID-19 liability protections for physicians, and eight states already had such legislation in place. And so the hope is that other states will kind of follow suit and then um, ultimately to get something federally passed, perhaps by way of the next COVID-19 package, would be outstanding. Thank you so much. I think this was a great summary of what's been done so far with the federal level. Um, I'm proud to have both of you as advocates and as emergency doctors and voices for our community. And um, just generally proud of sort of the increased stature of emergency medicine over the last six months. I think people are really looking to us now just because they know we've been on the front lines. And uh, so hopefully we'll get a compromise bill this fall. And uh, thank you so much for summarizing. I was supposed to make a disclaimer that the views expressed are our own and do not represent um, either Congressman Robin Kelly or George Washington University. But thank you so much for tuning in and uh, we'll see you at the next episode. Urgent Matters was founded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in 2002. Since then, it has served as a dissemination vehicle for the best practices in emergency care through our webinars, podcasts, newsletters, issue briefs, innovation awards, and national meetings. Currently sponsored by the Ronald Reagan Institute of Emergency Medicine at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., Urgent Matters supports innovative care strategies and is a resource for the ED community to discover field-tested new initiatives that can be tailored to their local practice or organization. Our editorial board consists of a holistic group of stakeholders, including ASEP, West Health, EDPMA, and AACCP. Uh, I had like my kids like moving their bikes around the living room at one point and uh, <laughs> request sending me app requests for approval that were immediately urgent, obviously.